Today's sermon text is from Acts um, 9, 1 through 19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you come, came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. stand for a few more minutes <laughs> this is the word of the lord yeah amen you can have a seat if you haven't already i want to invite you to turn with me to acts chapter 9 i love those awkward moments i relish them i can i joke all the time it is uh i am sometimes far too comfortable in in awkward uh silences um we i can sit in an awkward silence for um an uncomfortable amount of time so don't try me on that um acts chapter 9 um as, as amanda just read there what what she read i don't know if you've thought about it this way before what she just read was by far the most famous conversion story in the history of the world by far the most the most consequential the most famous conversion story in the history of the world and yet it's an experience that every single christian must have and i don't, I don't know about you but when i was converted um and then thought about writing out my story it looks nothing like this so this is this is something that is dramatic it is something that is as i said the most famous conversion story in the history of the world something that was specific to paul but at the same time every single person in this room if you're a christian 
you have experienced something of the kind that Saul did. Saul's conversion story is famous in part because of what the man would go on to do, but also in part because of the, the drama of the conversion. The story is phenomenal. Saul is on his way to arrest Christians, and on the road, a light shone from heaven and surrounded him. And then he hears and sees the Lord Jesus as he's looking up, gazing into heaven, and he sees the risen Jesus. And Jesus confronts him. And then he goes blind, and he, and he just follows Jesus' instructions, and he goes into a city, and he's praying, and he receives a vision, maybe at the same time that Ananias receives a vision. And then Ananias comes, lays his hands on him, he receives the Holy Spirit, and he's baptized. My story is a little different. I was 10 years old. We were at a VBS, and here's probably how my conversion story would start if Saul's conversion story started with a light shone from heaven. Mine would start with, and they were singing, yes, say yes to VBS. Yes, say yes to VBS. And they were singing that song, and as it concluded, they sat down, and a very ordinary youth pastor started sharing a very ordinary gospel presentation, and he had a goofy present that he was using, and the 10-year-old weird boy was like, I want whatever's in there. I don't care what it is. I just want the present. And it was hook, line, and sinker for me when he said that salvation is a gift that you cannot create. You have to receive. And I was like, huh gift present salvation it clicked and in that moment it clicked and I came to faith in Jesus in that moment and obviously you know there's backstory the Lord was working in all kinds of ways as I look back but it was in that very ordinary moment and then just to show that I still had a long way to go um, I had both a legalistic moment and a rebellious moment right after my conversion so uh, at VBS my mom was working somewhere and so uh, they were like hey you have to go tell your mom you have to go tell your mom you just accepted Jesus and I was like I, I can't do that my teacher told me I can't leave the class you know and it's like I was such a rule follower I had I, I didn't want to please my teacher and they're like you can go tell your mom that you're a Christian now you know it's okay you know it's like I don't think I can do that I can't break that rule and then once I was freed from that and, and I left and I went over and I told my mom the next station was arts and crafts and so I was like who else can I tell that I am now a Christian and so I just like journeyed across the whole campus so I wouldn't have to go to arts and crafts so had a long way to go but a very ordinary conversion story how were you converted? What, what's your conversion story? When, when was the moment that you turned from your sin, from your current way of living, and, and you turned to Jesus in faith? What did that look like? I want to encourage you later today to write it out. You may not have thought about it in a long time. Write it out. It'll do you some good. How are you converted? Conversion looks different for each person. Some people have more dramatic conversion experiences that might even rival Paul. Others have more quiet conversion experiences. Others are more ordinary. Some of you, you're like, you know what? I, at this point in my life, I don't even remember. I, I just remember at some point I started believing in Jesus, which, side note, this is the importance of the local church. Here's, here's the importance of the local church. If the local church takes membership seriously, takes conversion seriously, takes baptism seriously, then even if you can't remember, what you would be able to do is point back to your local church, when did they baptize me? I was converted around that time. So, just side note, that's why it's so important to be plugged into a local church. It can provide deep assurances of salvation for you down the road. Um, but that's uh, neither here nor there. But conversion, 
It's something we all experience. It looks different for all of us, but it's something we all experience. And what we usually try to do when we think about conversion is we, we try to trace our steps and we think back. Because you may be asking yourself, was I really converted? Or have I just been in the church all my life? And by the way, that is entirely possible. It is possible for you to be in the church your entire life and have never been converted not, not, and not be a true believer. It's possible. Um, but, but what we do is, is we think back, okay, when was my conversion? What did it look like? We trace the steps and we, we think through, well, did I say the right words? Did I, did I say the right words? Did I pray the right prayer? Did I say the right words in the right order? And then we, we start stressing ourselves out, and, and then conversion becomes more like a magic spell than it does a, a work of God's grace in our hearts. So here's what I want us to do. The topic of conversion can be, can be scary. It can be something that we, you know, can be, you know, something we don't really want to think about. Uh, it can be daunting. And I, I want us to think about conversion instead of thinking of it in terms of patterns or steps or, or experiences where we just have, like, endless testimonies. We need to think of conversion in terms of elements, because there are certain elements, even though every conversion experience is different, there are certain elements that are the same, and I'm, I'm going to share three elements that I believe are present here in Saul's conversion, and that I believe we actually find in every conversion, no matter how ordinary or dramatic, and we see it in three, three movements here. First, we see God's patience with his people. In, in every conversion story, there, there is patience from God. Second, we see God's pursuit of his people. Every, every conversion is a story of how God pursued. And then finally, we see God's plan for his people. Conversion has a particular plan from the Lord in how we come to faith and then what happens after we have been converted. So God's patience, his pursuit, and his plan. We see all three in the conversion of Saul. And I hope this is helpful for us as we think about our own conversions. Okay, first, God's patience with his people. Now, Luke introduces Saul. And by the way, if I start doing the Saul-Paul thing, it's because if you're not familiar, Saul is going to have a name change later. He's later going to be known as Paul. So just bear with me on that. But Luke introduces Saul as this zealous, merciless, violent man. Now, if you remember, Saul was present at the death of Stephen. He was a consenting voice. And he was a consenting presence to the violence of Stephen's death. He callously served as like a coat rack. Do you remember this? The men who were going to stone Stephen, I guess, you know, their, their coats were a little, you know, heavy for them. They needed, they needed those arms to, you know, be ready to go. And so they took their coats off, and Saul's like, I'll hold them for you. Here, yeah, go get him. I'll hold them for you. Just so callously uh, serving as almost like a coat rack for these men who, who killed Stephen. And we learn from Acts 8 that Saul, this is the language that Luke uses, was ravaging the church, entering the homes of Christians and dragging them off to prison. And now here in Acts 9, we see Saul, who, who was from Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus, many call him. He's acquired these letters from the high priest to take to the synagogues in, in probably a somewhat large Jewish community in Damascus for the purpose of arresting Jewish Christians and bringing them back to Jerusalem to put them on trial. And Luke, he even says that Saul, even though he likely didn't go and just like, you know, slaughter these Christians, he was on a mission. He wanted to arrest them and bring them back. He had murder on his mind. He says that, that Saul was breathing out threats and murder. So Saul had execution in mind for these Christians. 
Now, a question here, because there isn't anyone else. We, it, when we went through the first four or five chapters of Acts, there were a lot of opponents to, to the new Christian movement. None of them, none of them were this vicious. None of them were this violent. So it's a fair question. Why was Saul so full of hate for the Christian community? What was it about this man that led him to commit his life for a little while to the destruction of the church? Well, there are a couple things we need to know about Saul. First, Saul was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee committed to the law. Now, Saul was born in a city called Tarsus, um, which is the principal city of Cilicia on the south coast of Turkey. So he was a Roman citizen, um, and that, that's probably due to the fact that either his father or his grandfather uh, had gained favor, had done something really remarkable for the city of Tarsus, but he had Roman citizenship. And if you remember in Philippians 3, you would recall Paul describing himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I mean, he was a Pharisee through and through. Tarsus was a, basically a university city. It rivaled the university cities of Alexandria and Athens at that time, but Paul did not study in his hometown. Instead, he studied in Jerusalem. And it's really interesting. Saul studied at the feet of a, a rabbi named uh, Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was the grandson of the founder of Phariseeism. So, so Paul, Saul had these really deep Pharisaical roots. He had both an impressive pedigree and an impressive education. So he was a committed Pharisee, which means that he was deeply committed, not only to the law itself, the Old Testament scriptures, but their application and how they should be obeyed and how they should be lived out. But Saul was also a zealot. Okay, so he was a Pharisee committed to the law, but Saul also turned into a zealot committed to preserving God's glory and opposing any outside perversions to his faith, to Judaism. So even though Saul was trained by this rabbi Gamaliel, he really didn't follow Gamaliel's teachings. Gamaliel actually makes an appearance in the book of Acts. We, we already, we've already seen this. And he sort of had this live and let live mentality. Saul was far more zealous. And he actually found common ground with a rabbi who opposed Gamaliel's grandfather, and his name was Rabbi Shammai. And, and you can, I'm not going to go too deeply into that. You can look that up later. But Rabbi Shammai taught that if God was going to establish his kingdom on earth, if he was going to establish his reign on earth, then those who were zealous for God and for the law would have, in the words of one scholar, they would have to say their prayers, sharpen their swords, and prepare for action. Saul was a man who was deeply committed to the glory of God. He was a faithful student of the Torah. He wanted to see God's promises in his word come to pass so that his reign would fill the earth and people from all nations would flock to Jerusalem to praise him. But he believed that his role involved taking action against God's enemies. And that's because Saul was so deeply familiar with the story of Israel. He knew the Old Testament scriptures. He knew Israel's propensity to idolatry. So the people of Israel, if you're not familiar, they were so prone to rebel against God. And even though they had been given the law, they had been given the word of the Lord, they rebelled against it time after time after time. They adopted the idolatrous practices of their neighboring nations. 
And so that's what Saul believed was happening with this new Jesus movement. More blasphemy, more idol worship, just a new version of an old story. And it's actually worse because these Christians, you, you heard what they were saying. The temple is null and void. The sacrifices are null and void. And so for a zealot, for a Pharisee like Saul, something had to be done. Once again, the people of God are being lured away from him in Saul's mind. Okay, so then you take that background, this man, and he, and he shows up at the stoning of Stephen. Because maybe Saul didn't have the guts to do it himself. But there he is, and he finds himself, and he sees other Pharisees, other Jewish leaders taking Stephen outside the city and stoning him to death for teaching the gospel. So he finds comrades, he finds people who are like-minded to him, and when he sees Stephen's death, it's like a watershed moment for him. He saw the zeal in his heart play out in front of his eyes, and so now it was all crystal clear to him. This movement of Jesus' followers that was proclaiming that all of God's promises were now fulfilled in Jesus, that they were spreading the poison that God's reign has come to earth through Jesus, and that they were claiming that the Messiah was Jesus and that he died. Messiahs can't die. And they were proclaiming that Jesus was raised from the dead and that he was ascended to the right hand of God. Saul knew this movement has to be snuffed out. These idol worshipers have to be dealt with. They had to be stopped. Zeal was in the air, and Saul wanted in. And so from that moment until his journey to Damascus, Saul fully committed himself to the complete destruction of the church. So, so in sum, as we think about this person, Saul of Tarsus, Saul thought, this was his error, he thought he knew who God was. Did you notice when Jesus appears to Saul, he doesn't know who he is. He says, who are you? Because he already thinks he knows who God is. He thought God would never, in a million years, set aside the temple and the sacrifices. He thought God could never become a person. And he thought the Messiah would never die. And so when he put all of that together in his mind, it led him to persecute the church. Here's what's amazing about this. As Luke portrays this man as, as being so violent against God's true people, it's amazing that when Jesus appears to Saul, he appears with a word of kindness and mercy. When he appears and the light shines, it's not a light of judgment. It's a, it's a revelatory light. God was patient with Saul in all of his misunderstanding and misinterpretation and misuse of the scriptures. God was patient with Saul in all of his misplaced zeal. Saul was wrong. He was dead wrong. In his attempts to defend God's glory, he was defaming God's glory. In his attempts to promote God's reign in the world, he was actually opposing it. And in his attempts to prevent rebellion against God's purposes, he found himself rebelling. Through his wrong beliefs, his horrible zeal, and his bloodthirst for the church, Saul deserved nothing short of the judgment of God. 
And it was this judgment that he so desperately wanted to bring down upon the early Christians. Yet God was patient and merciful, not giving Saul what he deserved, but instead forbearing while he persisted in sin. And this is where it connects to conversion. God's patience is at the root of every conversion story. God's patience. When you think about your moment of conversion, think about all the time before that. Before the light came on in your heart and you saw God for who he truly is in Christ and you turned to him in faith, before that moment, the way that you used to live, that whole time, God is being patient. He's being patient. He's extending mercy and kindness to you in your rebellion. You see, typically preachers will use fear to point to the urgency of conversion. Turn to Jesus now because you don't know what might happen on your way home. Turn to Jesus now and so you scare people into faith in Jesus. Patience is a better motivator. It's not that God might strike you down with lightning later today if you don't turn to him, so you better turn to him now. Instead, it's that you leave this place and you're still messed up and you don't understand and you don't believe God will be patient with you. His patience extends. His patience is long. His patience is deep. Hasn't God been so patient with you? We're so much like Saul. We're prone to misunderstand, misinterpret, and misuse the Bible. You do know you're going to die one day misunderstanding the Bible. There are going to be things that you hold dear, beliefs, doctrines that you hold dear that you're wrong about. You're wrong. And yet you don't stand under the judgment of God because he is patient. He is forbearing. He is kind. We're like Saul, and sometimes we have misplaced passion and zeal, yet God remains patient. Conversion, this inner turning of the heart to the one true God, begins with patience. As, as the apostle Peter would later write, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's desire for Saul, despite his sin and despite his rebellion and despite his violence, was for him to reach repentance. And in the meantime, before he reaches repentance, he was preserved by God's patience. God's desire for you is the same. God does for us what we so often fail to do with others. He's patient with us. He doesn't give up on us. He waits and he waits and he waits and he waits. And he doesn't give us what we deserve. And here's why this is good news. Saul's conversion did not depend on his own ability to figure things out. If it did, he would have never been converted. He would have continued his campaign of terror against the church. Because if we are left to our own devices, we will continue constructing gods in our own image. We will continue to be wrong. We will continue to walk in darkness. And this is why God's patience is so beautiful. Regardless of your current spiritual state, God's disposition toward you is one of forbearance and patience. 
If you are running from God or rebelling against God, if you are dead wrong in your beliefs or in your application of your beliefs, if you are angry with God, if you are confused about God, or if you feel cold to him, he is right now being patient with you and waiting for you to turn. And in his mercy, he waits. But even more astounding than God's patience with his people is his pursuit of his people. God pursues his people. So Saul of Tarsus is very soon to become Paul the apostle. Saul, the persecutor of churches, is is very soon to become Paul, the planter of churches. What happened? Now, Luke doesn't say that, that Saul had this aha moment on the road to Damascus. He wasn't reading Isaiah 53 like the Ethiopian eunuch, and then the light turned on, and you know, he was talking with someone in a Bible study. This is, this is very different. There are no like light bulb moments here. But the lights do turn off and back on, so to speak. So Saul's conversion is due to God's powerful pursuit of him. So what do we see here? All right, here's what we see. Suddenly, not gradually... A burst of light from heaven shone all around Saul and his entourage, the people who were with him. A figure appears and addresses Saul with this emotional and warm, Saul, Saul. And then he asks him, why are you persecuting me? And so Saul is is obviously overwhelmed by this, and he doesn't recognize the figure, so he asks, who are you? And then the figure responds, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And then Jesus proceeds to instruct Saul to enter the city and wait for further instructions. And then Saul is left physically blind, though the eyes of his heart are starting to be opened for the very first time. Okay, so that's, that's what's happening. All the while that God is patiently withholding righteous judgment against Saul and against us, he is graciously and powerfully, if not mysteriously, pursuing us. Saul's conversion shows us that God's patience doesn't mean that he's just waiting with his fingers crossed. I really hope they make the right decision. I'm waiting as long as I can. Please make the right decision. Please believe the right things. No, while he is being patient with us, he is pursuing us. Our patient God is a pursuing God. And so Saul, he recognized at least two things through his encounter with Jesus here. First, it's that Jesus is alive. That had to be a tad startling to him. Jesus, the one that he was rejecting as the Messiah because he died, is actually alive. And second, he realizes the people that he's arresting and marching to their deaths, they are Jesus' people. Now, conversion must include this type of collide with God, a a confrontation from the Lord himself. Since conversion on on our end of things involves a willful turning of the heart toward Jesus, we have to first see that the direction that we're currently heading on is wrong. And the gods that we're currently serving are false. In a sense, we have to experience what Saul experienced if we are going to be converted. It's more important that the lights go out and that we are in darkness Then it is for a light to come on and we just all of a sudden figure things out. It's more important for us to sit in the darkness of our wrongness and our sin, to see it for the very first time. It's more important for our eyes to be shut to the false reality that we're living in so that they can finally be open to see God for for who he truly is. The risen Jesus appears to Saul and then his life is turned upside down. And again, this is not because Saul found Jesus, but because Jesus found Saul. 
conversion is evidence that the God who pursues sinners finds them. I love this image that C.S. Lewis gives. He said in his book, Surprised by Joy, people who are naturally religious find difficulty in understanding the horror of such a revelation. Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. That, that, that sticks with me. Our search for God is, is, is like a mouse's search for a cat. And if you're not catching it, mice don't search for cats. Cats hunt mice. God is after us. The beauty of the gospel is that all of your running from God is in vain. When, as George MacDonald says, the hound of heaven is on your heels. You cannot rebel enough or sin too much or... Stop following Jesus enough for the love of Jesus to stop pursuing you. He draws near to even the worst of sinners. Do you know this? No one is too far gone. No one. The people you are prone to write off don't. Saul would later describe himself as the chief of sinners. And here Jesus is, bringing him in. If Jesus loves, pursues, and finds men like Saul of Tarsus, he can and he will find you too. He pursues. But finally, we see here in conversion that God is not just patient, he doesn't just pursue, but he has a plan. God's plan for his people. So, God plan, I want to talk about God's plan in two ways. First, related to Saul. Second, related to a man named Ananias that we see in this story. So first... We see that God plans to use Saul to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, this shows us a lot of things. The Lord here is very clearly calling Saul to a particular task. So I don't want to speak too much into this. I mean, this calling is for, for Saul specifically. The time has come for the message of the gospel to extend to the Gentiles. And I find it really interesting that Jesus chose Saul to be the one for this task. I mean, if you think about it, there's, there's beautiful irony to this commission. Saul, the zealot, who could not have been more opposed to the Gentiles and foreigners, is the one who is called to bring the good news of the kingdom to the very people he once despised. Saul, the one dedicated more than most people to the law, to the customs of Israelite worship, would be the one to teach the Gentiles that they don't have to become Jewish in order to become the people of God. It's so odd, it's so ironic, but as one scholar says, it couldn't have been any other way. He, he puts it this way, and the person to do this task, to spearhead the work of getting the message out to those outside the law, must be the one who most clearly, of all others of his generation, had been the most keen to stamp the message out. When you want to reach the pagan world, he says, the person to do it will be a hardline, fanatical, ultra-nationalist, super-orthodox, Pharisaic Jew. It's beautiful. Saul was traveling to Damascus to limit the advance of the kingdom, and now the Lord is calling him to extend the kingdom further than it's ever been extended before. And we see here about conversion. Conversion is for everyone. Conversion is not just a special experience for the religious, nor is conversion just a dramatic experience for the especially sinful. Conversion is a necessary reality for anyone who wishes to enter the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has now been swung 
wide open. The gospel is for Pharisaic Jews and Ethiopian eunuchs. The gospel is for the religious in Tupelo who have constructed a different God for themselves all the while going to church. And the gospel is also for the non-religious in Tupelo who have rejected both Jesus and the church. And then conversion leads to calling. Conversion is the first step in a long journey with Jesus. Conversion isn't the end of the story. It's the beginning. God has glorious plans for our lives. And as, as the Lord tells Saul here, it's, it's going to include suffering. But conversion leads to calling. And sometimes that calling is as clear and specific as Saul's, and other times it's more general. But we are converted to live a particular kind of life, a Christ-centered life. We are converted to be changed into the likeness of Jesus and to give our lives for his sake in the world. But there's another plan here. So we see the plan for the gospel to extend to, to all nations through Saul. But we also see that God plans to use the local church in the miracle of conversion. Ananias. There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and he's, he's given this vision and he's told by the Lord to go seek out Saul and, and to tell him that he's going to be his instrument to the Gentiles. And Ananias is, is shaken by this, but we learn three things by this, this use of Ananias. And the first is that God sends a man named Ananias. Ananias was an ordinary Christian. He's not even the first person in the book of Acts named Ananias. He doesn't even have that to, to claim. He's a blip on the radar in the book of Acts. When I think about this story, when I think about the Damascus Road, I do not think of Ananias. But, but he sends him. He sends this ordinary man to go and lay hands on Saul so that he may receive the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus could have went to Peter. He could have went to John. He could have went to any of the disciples and said, hey, I need you to go to Damascus and fulfill this task. But he doesn't. A disciple named Ananias. This tells us that God plans to use ordinary Christians like you and me to accomplish his purposes, his glorious purposes, his consequential purposes in the world. He wants to send you. And he wants to send me to those in our city who have yet to trust Jesus. And we don't have to be good enough. That's the point here. Ananias is like, uh, you sure about that? Me? I'm Ananias. I'm the second Ananias that Luke mentions. But he doesn't send Peter and he doesn't send John. He sends Ananias and he sends you. He sends you to participate. How glorious this is. To participate in the miracle of conversion. But, but something else we learn from, from Ananias here. Ananias is faithfully obedient faithfully obedient. So, so follow with me in the passage. So the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias, I love this. This is what faithful obedience looks like. For us, when we think of faithful obedience, we think of it like with our children. We're like, obey the first time or it's not obedience, right? And so we think with God, it's like he tells us to do something. If we don't immediately go and do it, well, you didn't obey. You didn't obey, and then we, I guess we get a timeout or something. I don't know. Um, but you notice here, 
he is so sensitive to the spirit he hears the lord's voice and he recognizes it's the lord here i am i'm ready i'm ready to go and says i need you to go to this man named saul here's here's the address go to him and he's like okay i hear you hold up do you know what this man is doing look at his hesitation ananias answered and this is a faithfully obedient man lord i have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at jerusalem and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And he's like, I just want to set some context for you here. Um, this man you're sending me to might arrest me. He might arrest me and he might send me away. And, and this is the Lord's response. But the Lord said to him, go. And then he has a description, but that's, that's the command. Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of israel for i will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name and then what do we see in verse 17 the faithful obedience of ananias he's honest with the lord he's open with the lord and then he obeys verse 17 so ananias departed and he entered the house he was honest he was fearful but he brought those fears before the lord he said i i'm scared i'm scared of this man and what he might do to me and the Lord says, I understand. Now go. And Ananias went, this faithful obedience, in order to fulfill the mission of God in our midst, through our church. It is sometimes going to require risky obedience. Risky but faithful obedience to the Lord. The Lord may require us to go to people who may reject us, and, and the Lord may be calling you to extend the gospel to someone. When you start thinking about it, you're like, I, that doesn't sound like a good idea. If you feel that way, don't keep it to yourself. Don't complain and don't be stifled. Bring that fear to the Lord and let him say, I hear you. I hear you. Now go. And then go. We learn so much from Ananias' faithful obedience, but my goodness, what, what blows my mind. I just stand in awe of this man, this ordinary Christian is his fearless love for Saul. Because he doesn't just say in that moment, I mean, you're talking with the Lord, and he says, I hear you, but go. What are you going to do? You know, not go. Not at least go. And so he gets on the road, and he goes over to this, you know, he's got the address written down, and he goes over to the house, and he enters inside. But look at this boldness. Look at this boldness, and look at this love that he has for Saul. In verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying hands on him, he may have been a little encouraged by the fact that Saul couldn't see him, you know? So maybe he thought he'd get like a head start and he could just like dart out of there if things went bad. But um, he goes and he lays his hands on him. And look what he says to this murderous, violent persecutor of his brethren. He addresses him and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He addresses his dreaded enemy as brother. This, this is not a throwaway term. He's not just saying, hey, bro. When he addresses Saul as brother, he sees and understands the depths of the gospel. Jesus has reached this man. Yes, 
He was a murderer, yes. He was a persecutor of Christians, of churches, yes. He's in Damascus to take Christians away. But Jesus has reached him. And now, because Jesus has reached him, he's family. And that's all it took. That's all it took. He, he doesn't go in and say, Saul, how could you? How could you? All that time? Now, now do you see? Now do you see how wrong you were all that time? How could you? Those were my friends. You were coming to get me. How could you? No, it's immediate. Brother Saul. That's the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is that the Lord takes people that you would never think would never think would have a place in the kingdom of God and he brings them in. And when he brings them in, they're in. When he brings you in, you're in. And here's the result. Here, here, the conversion, the story is, is filled out. He lays his hands on him. Saul receives the Holy Spirit and immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And then he rose and he was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Saul is never going to be the same again. His conversion is complete. Here we see the patience and the pursuit of the Lord. And then we see his plan. Listen, um, there are two ways to respond here. And the first is a question for me. Do you need to be converted? Do, do you need conversion? Has the Lord been, been speaking through his word today? Has the spirit been working today and maybe in past weeks in such a way that you have recognized that you have been constructing a God for yourself? That the God that you worship is actually more in your image? If so, turn to him. Turn to this Jesus who pursues sinners. He is waiting in patience and he has been working to bring you to this moment. Turn to him in faith. And if you've already done that, know that your conversion was the beginning of your journey, not the end. That the Lord has a specific calling on your life to live as his witnesses, to be like Ananias and take part in the conversion of others. Whose conversion are you a part of right now? You can't know for certain. But if you're not having gospel conversations at all, you're not a part of anybody's conversion. Who is the Lord sending you to? Who is he sending you to? To go and be with and pray with and discuss with the things of God. He is sending you and he has sent you. Will you be like Ananias and will you go? And will you remember that through it all, through it all, the Lord has brought you to this place because he is patient and because he pursues and because he has a plan to open the gospel and the kingdom to any and everyone.